Good evening, everyone. It's uh, such a joy to be here. Uh, my name is Daniel Costa, and this is my lovely wife, Cynthia. We have been married for 17 years, and no, I didn't marry her when she was 10 years old. Uh, <laughs> Cynthia and I have 12-year-old uh, twins, uh, Tomas and Alice, who I guess we have a picture there. Uh, you can see the four of us. Uh, two blessings in our uh, lives. Uh, this family, this is Miles, and uh, we both here standing together in front of you are only possible because we have the God of the impossible. Cynthia and I were born in Brazil, where we grew up uh, with a lot of uh, make-your-own-choice scenarios. Growing up, God was never part of our lives. We would occasionally go to church on Sundays, but that never meant anything for me uh, nor to the rest of my family. The sadness and lack of any demonstration of love that I experienced growing up between my parents were always very explicit to me. They lived in the same house, but were never an example of what a marriage should look and feel like from a child's perspective. My mom was extremely passive, very focused on her work, never speaking up and accumulating loneliness after loneliness, with very low self-esteem and a lot of bitterness. She would refer to our academic success as a good reason to live a life like that, putting on me and uh, my brothers the responsibility for her empty life. She ultimately started dumping a lot of her disappointment with my dad on us, especially on me being the youngest of three boys and the last to leave our house to go to college. This led me to force my dad to leave our house when I was a teenager. It was clear to me that I did not want to be a husband or a dad like my father. Also, the age difference between me and my brothers exposed me at an early age to thoughts centered around lust and my value derived from academic accomplishments. I saw pornography and masturbation as something that every boy would, would and should do in order to become a man, which made me see sex as something that was uh, purely self-serving. The culture that I grew up and the influence of my family made alcohol a huge component of my life as early as when I was 15 years old. In hindsight, it's very clear now that back then I was already trying to escape reality. During my teenage and young adult years, I followed what I thought was the recipe for and the definition of success. I worked really hard, and my academic accomplishments were always praised by my family and my friends, validating the you-are-in-the-right-path view that I had of myself. Not knowing what true joy was, it was very difficult for me to have the awareness that something was missing. Transitioning from medical school to being a physician, I was working a lot, was recognized as a good doctor, and a fun friend to hang out with. None of this, however, meant that I had grown as a more mature person. It was quite the opposite. These successes, combined with being taught that I could not and should not count on anyone but myself, set a very prideful foundation. Humility meant weakness. I had become my own savior. Proverbs 11.2 says, 
when pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. Ultimately, this self-made man pride made me feel good enough to judge and feel superior to others, take things for granted and feel entitled rather than grateful. I am the youngest of three girls, raised by a mom who married at a very young age and divorced at my dad's request after 26 years of a very unhealthy marriage. In an attempt to protect us, my mom never shared how my dad had been unfaithful countless times. Her source of hope was that he would change, living in constant fear. My dad was very absent with the excuse of traveling for work. Whenever he was home, I adored him because he would bring me presents and take me to fun places. But that lasted only a day or two, and soon enough, he would disappear. After moving to a big city when I was 12, my mom and my sisters started attending church regularly. I liked going there, and soon I got involved with a teens group and several activities. Church was a safe place for me, kept me busy, and made me feel I belonged. I started dating a boy from the group when I was 15. We dated for seven years. He was a churchgoer, and I was somehow checking boxes too, trying not to let anyone down. The fear of rejection, which started with the absence of my father, left me insecure and unable to say no. I've always cared about what pe other people think, the fear of not wanting to upset, upset anyone caused me to lack sound judgment. I wanted to be accepted, loved, and cared for. I was willing to deny who God had called me to be in order to live up to other people's perceptions. Proverbs 29:25 says, fearing people is a dangerous trap, but trusting the Lord means safety. In 2004, I met Cynthia. Uh, she checked all the boxes, beautiful, sweet, hardworking, fun, and smart. Through mutual friends, we got closer to each other. When we first kissed, I knew I would marry her, and I told her that. I knew she was a believer, and that did give her extra credit. She would be a faithful, loving wife and mom that would help create healthy routines that I never had growing up. Three months later, we were engaged, and six months later, we were married. I think there, there we are. Not knowing what love meant, I wanted to make her as happy as I thought a wife could be. I almost always looked at my parents' behavior as an example of what not to do in my marriage. The unhappiness that I saw as a child made me believe the lie that the goal of marriage was to make Cynthia happy, and of course, to be made happy by her. A contract, not a covenant. So that is what we experienced during the first five years of our marriage. We were happy by the world standards. That's when things started to change. Increasingly busy at work and having newborn twins and recently moved to the United States, we found ourselves away from our family at a place where the self-made man myth is cultivated. My desire to be a fixer and perform well in a demanding job changed my attitude towards everyone around me. I became a transactional person, set very high expectations from everyone. 
Every time I felt Cynthia was not the perfect mom that I never had, or that she was not making me happy, I felt frustrated and unloved. Rather than seeking dialogue, I would withdraw, bitter and selfish, with a relentless apathy towards her. This gradually separated us, and sadly, I found myself alone and lonely, putting our family in a very, very vulnerable position. Matthew 7, 129 says, Judge not that you be not judged. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? When I was in college, I got busy between a job and clinical rotations, and slowly going to church wasn't my priority. After dating for so long, I wanted to enjoy my life in the world sense, and went from empty relationship to another, spending my summer partying and drinking, trying to find my identity, but still calling myself Christian. After graduation, I was happy, professionally speaking, while still trying to find a relationship to fill a gap in my heart. When I met Daniel, I was hurt from a previous quick relationship with a non-believer, and as he said, after one kiss, he said he would marry me. For the first time, I felt someone was choosing to love me. After our kids were born, we slowly started drifting away from each other. Then he was very involved with the kids, and I started feeling neglected. Unhealed past wounds came back to surface. I started believing the lies of the enemy, that I had married the wrong boyfriend, that my husband would never change, that someone else would love me more, and that I should follow my heart, or I would end up like my mom. I was seeking justification for my wrongdoings. I lost hope in my marriage. Through social media, I reconnected with an ex-boyfriend, and slowly the text messages became a phone call that led to other conversations, and I became emotionally involved with him. I was trusting my feelings instead of God's truth, and that would have led to divorce if it wasn't God, for God's grace. I stopped pursuing Christ, but he never gave up on me. God was working in Daniel's heart long before I realized it, when he found out about this emotional affair and where my heart was. Daniel met me with forgiveness and grace. Instead of accusation, he showed me a sincere desire to work in our marriage. Proverbs 28:13 says, Whoever conceals their sins does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. Because of this truth, bringing my sin into light caused my sin to lose its power over me. God found me in my mess. I started seeking the Lord and to truly know Him in a deeper way. I began to fully understand the depth of God's great love for me and that the deepest desire of my heart only Jesus could satisfy. I was so convicted of my sin, and with that came a lot of shame. As Cynthia said, in December 2020, uh, our marriage was in the ICU after many years of uh, gradual deterioration. I felt that Cynthia was not making me happy, did not appreciate all that I did, and getting a divorce seemed like the norm among most people we knew. So divorce seemed like the natural next step. I thought, that will be tough. I will suffer, but she will suffer even more. That's how much of a playground for the enemy I had become. But God had different plans. 
He used a counselor to help me identify that many of the issues with our marriage were the result of my behavior and poor judgment. I learned how frequently my disappointment was not because Cynthia wronged me, but because she failed to meet my unrealistic expectations. Looking in the mirror to find out how I missed the mark so badly and for so long led to a sudden, overwhelming avalanche of negative feelings about myself. It was paralyzing, scary, and disorienting. A self-declared, rational, hard-working, and data-driven man, I realized that I had become a cold-hearted machine, successful by worldly standards, but I was broken and empty inside. In Romans 6:23, Paul says, for the wages of sin is death. For the first time, I caught myself praying to a God that I doubted was real and personal. And that was when my first encounter with Christ happened in my lowest valley, struggling with shame, guilt, and hopelessness. I literally asked Jesus to provide me relief and show me the way forward, and he did. In the same verse that Paul reminds us that the wage of sin is death, he says that the gift of God is eternal life in Christ. Jesus showed me that I was loved, forgiven, not defined by my past, and that walking in his direction was the way forward that my identity was not determined by whether our marriage was going to survive. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, and the new is here. Two years ago, on May 23, 2021, Jesus gave me a new life and a new heart. And I think, yeah. So that, that counts as our first kiss. <laughs> Upon experiencing what this new life felt like, I could not not want more of him. I quickly directed my focus to God and how to get closer to him. The songs I listened to, the books I read, what I shared with others throughout the day, all revolved around my pursuit of him. It was not until a few months later that I became a believer and was committed to rebuilding our relationship that I found out about Cynthia's affair. My initial reaction was the opposite of what I always thought I would do in a situation like this. I realized that long before Cynthia was unfaithful to me, I had been unfaithful to her, and more importantly, to God. Every time I was judgmental, disregarded her opinion, gave her my disapproval look, ignored her existence, or said that our problems had nothing to do with God, I took steps toward my death, the death of our marriage and of our family. Seeing Cynthia's genuine repentance, I did, want her, I did not want her to feel the shame, the guilt, and fear that I felt, and that were very fresh in my memory. I can see how God orchestrated this sequence of events. He turned what the enemy tried to use to separate us, to unite us like never before, to renew our commitment to each other, to experience his goodness, and to learn to lean on his strength to fight the battle that we cannot fight on our own. Don't believe the lie that you have done something terrible that can't be forgiven or that your marriage is broken beyond repair. Look at the cross. There is nothing too big to be covered by that payment. Daniel became my best friend. There is no one I would rather be with. That didn't happen overnight, but by surrendering daily our marriage to God's unfailing love, prioritizing our relationship with the Lord, 
at the beginning of the uh, engage, we truly felt our marriage was in a good spot after the darkest valley of our lives. Still, every chapter revealed something in us that needed to be worked on. We learned the importance of sharing past scenes and wounds that if left in the dark would prevent us from experiencing emotional intimacy and oneness. We know this is a long story. Living and writing it has produced many tears of brokenness turned into gratitude. Turning to and loving God allowed me to see Cynthia as the wife that he sent me, that I vowed to love, and whose brokenness, just much like mine, should be an encouragement for me loving and serving her. As we reflect on how we got where we got, which may be what brought you here today, we realize that what rules our hearts will shape the way we deal with life's ups and downs, including our relationships. Real change requires a change of heart, and Jesus is the one and only that can do that. Jesus is the only celebrity in this story of redemption and new life. All glory is his. This is not a case of heroic faith. Instead, it is a case about the abundant grace of God towards us. It was, it is, and it will be when we put him at the center of our lives and relationships that we experience being alive. The oneness that we experience transcends what we thought possible on the day that we got married 17 years ago. And there's another evidence of his love for me, for Cynthia, and for our family. Before we say goodbye, we want to ask you to reflect on what you, not your spouse, can do to avoid this cycle of struggling heart leading to expectations, disappointment, anger, and walls that separate you from each other and from God. James 4.8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. God bless you, your marriages, and your families. Thank you for letting us share. Thanks.